Hey, this is Andy Jenkins, and welcome to episode 165 of the podcast. And this is this is really the fourth week where I'm bringing you information specifically from the audiobook of my new book, Soul Wholeness. Now, a couple episodes ago, in episode number 160, I brought you some information from the introduction where I really took you back into the world that I was living in when I took the psych eval and really did that to show you, hey, there's no guilt, there's no shame, there's no condemnation when you find that you're struggling in the area of your mindset, in the area of your emotions. Let's face it, if somebody has a broken arm, we don't guilt or shame them because they're struggling with their physical wholeness or health. If somebody goes to the gym because they're overweight and they're deciding, hey, I'm, I'm going to cut 10, 15, 20, 50, what, whatever pounds and just reclaim my body back and walk in physical health, there's there's no guilt or shame or condemnation or any other type of thing for that. In fact, we celebrate it. And what I really believe we should do is celebrate and encourage when people take ownership and begin to start walking in soul wholeness. So often we look at that area and we either ignore it and don't think anything about it. We we think about body health and we even think about spiritual health. But this area of the soul that encompasses your mind and your emotions and your mood and your feelings Goodness, that is the area that can hijack life the most, and it's the area wherein you can find the most opportunity and freedom to grow and find some success that will really serve you well in each area of your life. And so with that, I took a break to begin the Coaches series. That will be back again next week. Uh, But then in episodes 163 and 164, we talked about two different types of soul wounds that I mentioned in the book and I mentioned in the 14 video online on-demand course. The link to the book, to the audiobook, to the on-demand course are all in the show notes below. I would love for you to take advantage of that. Uh, it's four hours of video you can watch, rewatch as many times as you want. You log in, it'll work on your computer, it'll work on your phone. You can sling it up to the Apple TV and watch in your house on the television. Uh, all of that information is there below. Anyway, we talked about in episode 163 dealing with the present when we wrongly read it in light of the past. That led us to a conversation really about post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic stress disorder. And then we shifted in an episode 164, we discussed addiction. We discussed soul ties. We discussed why so many times we see unhealthy fruit in our lives. And we determined that to deal with bad fruit, you really need to put down a healthy root. And when you have a healthy root, fruit that you want tends to emerge. Uh, From there, we move to this third type of wound. This one is not a response to an external threat. This is really something internal that's going on that it's guilt and it's shame. In fact, the technical term for this is moral injury. Now, I've known about this for years, really became well-versed in this during my time on staff at a local nonprofit here in town, Crosswinds Foundation for Faith and Culture, that my friend Bob Waldrop founded back in 2008. In fact, these guys have shot an entire documentary on moral injury and discussed how it relates to soldiers. So here's here's what I'm going to do, and I'll, I'll reference that Uh, documentary and that organization in this audio file. So here it is. I'm going to show you the audio right now from chapters 15 and chapter 16 in the book Soul Wholeness, where in chapter 15, I really talk about moral injury. I, I think that it is more spread widely than PTSD. I think we don't have language for it yet because It doesn't appear in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is the basis and the criteria for how professionals make um, diagnoses, how they prescribe, how they treat mental health conditions. I do believe that when they release DSM-6, this one will be in there. 
Uh, I think that probably more soldiers that uh, die of suicide now, uh, it's probably related to moral injury than PTSD. Uh, that will make sense, I believe, after you listen. That, that's just my opinion. That's not a professional uh, or data-backed suggestion. That's just really what I think after having been in that world and teaching uh, in, in that environment for a couple years. Um, this one, I believe, is massive. So chapter 15, we're going to define it. And then in chapter 16, I'm going to share that right on the heels of this. I'm going to take you into the all too uncommon cure. And this one really starts tapping into that area of faith. So this is going to be a little bit longer than normal. Listen, this episode, I think, has massive potential to help you or someone very close to you. I'll be back at the conclusion of chapters 15 and 16 from the book, Soul Wholeness. Chapter 15, more powerful than PTSD. Main idea, we're born with a moral compass, an internal rudder of right and wrong. When we violate our personal conscience, soul wounds can occur. Moral injury, a soul wound akin to PTSD, is often the result. Rather than eliciting a fight-or-flight response, moral injury creates feelings of guilt and shame. Throughout this book, we've addressed soul wounds that are primarily mental, our mindset, or emotional, our feelings. But there's another area we haven't spoken about, namely spiritual health, our faith. In the same way our emotions can be broken, so also can the unique connection between our soul and our spirit. Perhaps this story will help illustrate what I mean. Washington Booker III is one of the warriors featured in the documentary Honoring the Code. I'll explain more about that documentary in a moment. Booker was a U.S. Marine Corps sniper during the Vietnam War. When he was interviewed for the film, he said boot camp actually altered his definition of what it meant to be human. At least it did for a moment. He said, when you show up for boot camp and you go to infantry training school, they constantly drill into you that your job is to close in and kill the enemy. He reminded us there's a tension you feel because when you begin, killing is not normal to you. They turn it into something else and make it acceptable. They run you until you almost fall out and then you yourself begin saying, kill, kill, kill. You begin to cheer for something you were once adamantly against. More relevant to our discussion about overall wholeness, Booker told a story from the battlefield. He reported, I was a sniper. During a battle, I killed an NVA lieutenant. It was about four or five o'clock in the morning when they hit us. I remembered where he fell. Notice what he said. In the same way a hunter makes mental notes as to where the deer or bird fell so he can later collect it, Booker marked where his target died. He confessed why so I could go and search the body for souvenirs after the battle. The battle raged most of the day. Late in the afternoon, well after the U.S. forces pushed the Viet Cong troops away, Booker looped back to check the body. I checked his belt and I took his weapon, he said. Then I opened his wallet. Remembering what he saw next, he reminisced. There were some pictures in there, probably someplace in North Vietnam. And in those pictures were him, a woman, and some children. I knew then they were his wife and kids. Those few seconds changed him. At boot camp, killing became acceptable and encouraged. It no longer felt that way. The pendulum jerked back in the opposite direction. Hard, an invisible wave of regret crashed over him, submerging him amidst his thoughts as he stood on the battlefield. Booker revealed, That very second, the man I killed became a human, not a combatant. He was no longer some evil force moving along the ridge lines or shadows. He became a person. His wife and his kid were now somewhere crying. Needless to say, I never searched another body. The Unexpected Plot Twist If you follow me on social media, you know I co-wrote a book and co-created a course for veterans who struggle with the invisible scars of war. I did so in partnership with the nonprofit known as Crosswinds. That's how I got introduced to Booker and his story. My friend Bob Waldrop founded the organization over a decade ago. Shortly thereafter, as an overflow of some of the projects he found himself and his new organization involved in, he launched Front Porch Media and Entertainment in 2012. 
His goal was to better utilize film as a means of serving others. It became apparent that the first full-length feature needed to focus on the facet of his organization that focused on public policy and military service, specifically by creating a documentary aimed at helping military personnel who were suffering mental and emotional trauma, such as PTSD, as a result of their deployment, combat experience, or separation from family members who had been deployed. The nonprofit released the first film, Invisible Scars, in 2014, and immediately gained wide grassroots distribution, largely by word of mouth. DVDs of the film were passed from person to person and, through generous donors, provided free to veterans and their families. 50,000 were given away in the first few years. This accidental method of mass distribution created a relational connection between the organization, government agencies, service providers, and current and former soldiers. Here's where it gets super interesting. When you film a documentary, you have an idea of where the film will most likely take you, but you've got to remain open to the possibilities that it might take a turn you don't expect. It could lead you somewhere else completely. Icarus, the documentary which won an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature, is a prime example. I streamed the film on Netflix one evening and was shocked at the radical turn it took. The film began as a study in illegal sports doping. The filmmaker wanted to know if he could improve his performance with drugs in cycling. Along the way, he connected with a Russian scientist who became a trusted friend, a friend who later revealed he ran a state-sponsored doping program for the Russians. The result was a full-fledged, totally filmed whistleblow on the Soviet's Olympic doping program. No one, particularly the filmmaker, saw that coming. In some sense, this sort of plot twist happened with Invisible Scars. Bob and his team thought they were just creating a documentary about PTSD. Along the way, though, they continued bumping into something known as moral injury. It looks like PTSD at first glance, many professionals and service providers said. But the same treatment protocols don't help. It's clearly not PTSD. And if you treat it like PTSD... It doesn't work. You've got to do something else. Others observed, sometimes you find them together, both PTSD and moral injury, but they're different. Now, moral injury looks like PTSD at first glimpse because the symptoms, the externals, the the fruit, manifest in common expressions. Notice the following graphic. Now, in the book, there is a graphic here. It's labeled common symptoms with moral injury and PTSD. And it reminds us that PTSD, as we've already discussed earlier in the book, is a flight-or-fight response that results in, number one, hypervigilance, two, re-experiencing symptoms, three, avoidance symptoms, or number four, negative feelings. That's, for the most part, a mental and emotional uh, type of response to an external threat. And most often, the symptoms you'll see are... Uh, Anger, anxiety, depression, insomnia, nightmares, self-medication, and withdrawal. Now, now remember that list. Um, Now, in this chart, I have an overlapping circle where I have moral injury, and I describe it as guilt and shame. I'll I'll flesh this out in a moment in the book uh, because of, number one, a violated conscience, and number two, there's feelings of being unworthy or less than human. That is a spiritual and emotional response, and the resulting symptoms, the external, so not not the root cause, but the external symptoms are the exact same with PTSD. Let me read them again, because these are the same symptoms with two very different soul wounds, anger, anxiety, depression, insomnia, nightmares, self-medication, and withdrawal. So they, they look similar on the surface, but they originate with two different, just to use the language we've used in this book, two different roots. Let me continue reading and we'll explain. In-depth interviews with soldiers, their family members, and additional professionals revealed that what they kept hearing to be true was, indeed, true. Different than PTSD, moral injury is a real issue. And not only that, it's deep. In time and through many conversations, it became apparent a follow-up film was needed. So in 2016, Crosswinds released Honoring the Code, a film addressing issues of moral injury, which you may not yet have heard of, and survivor's guilt, which you probably have heard about. The short version is this. Moral injury most often occurs when your conscience is violated. 
Think back to Dr. Perkis's three facts about human nature we discussed in chapter 10. Number one, we're designed to explore and grow. Number two, we bump into things which cause pain, something we want to avoid. Number three, we create internal rules, often subconsciously, to help us manage the tension between facts number one and two. And some of those rules are functional, they're healthy and help us. Others are dysfunctional, they're unhealthy and hinder us. Well, turns out there's also a human code that's hardwired into uh, the vast majority of us, a set of subconscious rules. C.S. Lewis, the English professor who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, likened it to a moral compass or a moral law. Theologians refer to it as the image of God and the law that's written on our hearts. Whatever you call it, there are certain rules that are common across all cultures, all people groups, and virtually all times in history. Everyone knows, even subconsciously without being taught, that murder is wrong. Lying, cheating, and stealing aren't right. Rape and sexual assault are unacceptable. Men should defer to and honor women, children, and the elderly. In other words, we come hardwired with a set of rules. When we break these functional rules, these rules are our friends, and they're healthy and help us. Even if we've never been told not to, we feel deep internal unrest. We feel pain. We may feel broken. Why? because each of us have a conscience which actively communicates with us. Moreover, that conscience connects to the deepest, richest part of us, our spirit. Your Moral Compass Webster's Dictionary defines conscience as the sense or consciousness of the moral goodness or blameworthiness of one's own conduct, intentions, or character together with the feeling of obligation to do right or be good. In general, here's how the conscience tends to affect people. If you know to do right but do the opposite, the result may be a guilty conscience. If you know right but observe someone else do the opposite without trying to stop it, the result may be a guilty conscience. If you do what is right, the result should be a clear conscience. In other words, if you put a gag on the voice of do right, you will most likely experience a sense of guilt, even if you have no choice but to remain silent. Sometimes that is a misplaced guilt as the wrong committed is not your fault. It could be something someone else did, or it could be something that was done to you, or wasn't actually a wrong. Some people envision the conscience as an inner voice which help us distinguish between right from wrong, like a a moral compass. Others believe it springs forth from our inner being, from our spirit or soul, giving it more of a religious or spiritual connection. You may have seen the conscience depicted as an angel and a devil with one sitting on one shoulder of a person whispering in their ear, the angel tells us to do right, the devil tells us to do wrong. One of the professionals featured in Honoring the Code, Dr. Rita Brock, offers incredible insight here. To better understand the issue, consider the cause and consequence of moral injury that she identifies. Cause is violating or going against one's core moral beliefs, one's conscience. This may be a personal choice or, as is the case soldiers often experience, one demanded or ordered by someone in authority. The consequence equals evaluating one's behavior, their actions negatively to the extent they can no longer think of themselves as a decent human being. Now notice her second point, the consequence. PTSD often occurs when a person experiences, witnesses, or encounters a traumatic event. Though PTSD, even if undiagnosed, makes us feel uneasy, the issue often remains out there. We can separate ourselves from it. Moral injury, on the other hand, becomes so intertwined in the soul that we begin questioning our decency as humans. The expression of PTSD and moral injury is very different. Whereas PTSD creates a fight-or-flight response, attack the issue that's out there, or run away from it, moral injury manifests as an overwhelming feeling of guilt or shame. You've probably heard the saying, wherever you go, there you are. When the issue is in you, your conscience, your soul, you can't fight it or run from it. It remains present at all times. Earlier in the book, we talked about perceptions and reality and how PTSD or any emotional trauma affects both our mindset and our emotions. 
We think one thing is happening in the present based on our past experience, so we sometimes react inappropriately in the present. See chapter 8. Moral injury is different. Whereas PTSD primarily deals with our mind and our emotions, moral injury deals with our mind and our spirit. To be clear, our emotions can be involved with moral injury and our spirits can be involved with PTSD. These are each parts of our soul. Anything having to do with any part of us can affect every part of us. But the simplistic graphics that I share in the book, which were created for the book Warrior Hope, they help provide a general framework to distinguish between the two. Now, there's a graphic I want to call to your attention as I'm reading here. It just says they're similar but different. And it just reminds you that PTSD is a fight or flight response, moral injury. It results in feelings of guilt or shame. So they are both soul wounds. But they are both very different, even if, again, they both create anxiety, sleeplessness, insomnia, self-medication, withdrawal, uh, some of the other uh, symptoms that we see. Notice, again, PTSD, fight or flight in this graphic. So you're either going to take on the challenge because it's an external threat or you're going to run away from it. And then moral injury, it's it's not an external thing. It, it might have been a result of something that was external, but now uh, it has moved and is an internal soul wound that you seem to carry with you all of the time. And so you, you can't just get away from it. I'll continue reading. Furthermore, since PTSD and moral injury are two different issues, they must be addressed in a much different manner. Moral injury is guilt and shame resulting, uh, number one, conscience violated, two, feelings of unworthiness. PTSD must be addressed as primarily a mental and emotional issue. Moral injury, though it may have an emotional component, is basically a moral or spiritual issue. In chapter 13, I mentioned a first responder friend who, by his own admission, carried a weight of survivor's guilt. Remember, the man who trained him died one day while taking a routine call while my friend was scheduled off from work. It messed me up, he said, and I should have been there to stop it, or it should have been me. As he spoke more about his feelings related to the loss of a close co-worker, he described tangible guilt and unworthiness. In my opinion, he wasn't dealing with PTSD. He was sorting through moral injury. Remember, whereas PTSD elicits the fight-or-flight response, moral injury is accompanied by a sense of guilt and or shame. For a moment, let's separate the two concepts of guilt, what we do, and shame, who we are. The two, though related, are different, and this helps explain why moral injury is so devastating. Whereas guilt focuses on actions, what we do, shame declares identity, who we are. People can repent of actions, but they can't repent of their identity. As we discussed earlier in chapters 11 and 12, an identity change requires we do more than rewrite the script. To change an identity, we must recast the character, or to say it another way, we must address the root causes rather than looking at the fruit symptoms. Now, in the book, there's also another graphic here. It's a chart that says guilt and shame comparison. And there are just two lines on it. Line number one is guilt. Line number two is shame. And for each of those, I describe uh, two different columns. First column is based on, second column is described in detail. Let me flesh it out for you here. Guilt is based on an action. I did something. Um, let me describe it. Guilt is the result of something you do. It may be out of character for you, or it could have been based on circumstances. A, a good example of this would be soldiers who uh, have to take a life, such as Booker did, in the line of duty. Uh, soldiers don't normally go around and shoot people. However, because of the situation, they must shoot people in order to preserve and save other lives. The result can still be guilt, though, or a sense of, of guilt, even though the action was something that was required and necessary. Uh, the next line is shame. Shame is based on identity. I am something. Let me describe it. It results in a feeling of who you are. It's different than doing a bad thing. This denotes you're a bad person, perhaps not even valued as human. And, and again, what's important on these is not the societal definition. What's important, because these soul wounds are unique to each individual, it's how the individual feels, because as we said in the book, you are the pain scale. 
So you have to deal with it from where you or the other person is and then step forward from that location towards wholeness. I'll continue reading. Here's a new heading. Undiagnosable skeletons. Here's the strange thing about moral injury. Everywhere I talk about it, as many people resonate with it as they do PTSD. By that I mean this. In the same way most of us are not diagnosable with PTSD, understanding it helps us navigate our own emotional wounds. Most of us do not have moral injury, but we do struggle with feelings of guilt and shame. We see something tangible that we can connect with. Even though we see it, sense, or feel it in our own lives, uh, it may not be as extreme as the full-blown psychological condition. Seeing that outlier provides language for us whereby we can understand our own experience. Based on what we learn, we find ourselves more equipped to step towards overall health. The goal remains not to receive or reject a diagnosis either way. The goal remains living whole. Here's the kicker, though. No one can currently be diagnosed with moral injury. It's not included in the DSM-5, which provides the basis for receiving any diagnosis. But then again, remember, our goal isn't to get diagnosed, nor is it to avoid a diagnosis. Our goal is to walk in total health. That is, we want to define where we are so we can walk into who we're designed to be. Not as bad as Booker. You probably don't have a story like Booker's. Few people do. Your story may be something more like this. A decade ago, I met a friend for coffee every Tuesday evening at 8.30 p.m., right after we tucked our kids in bed and had time to make a quick drive to the nearby Starbucks. It was our weekly one-to-one small group. One evening, he told me he needed to get something off his chest. It was something he did a long time ago, something he never told anyone, not even his wife. What's up? I asked. A few years ago, I... He completely filled in the blank, telling me in a few short paragraphs the situation, the sin, and the stranglehold the secret held on him since the event he was hiding first happened. I thought for a moment. Then I looked at him. Is, is, is that it? Is that what you've been carrying? I expected something more, a somewhat bigger reveal. I mean, what he told me wasn't a small issue. It was significant, but the shame he expressed disproportionately outweighed the guilt of what he had done. Immediately, I learned two things. The first is that the power of a hidden secret grows exponentially the longer we keep them deadbolted behind closed doors. No matter how big they are, no matter how much we fear sharing them, the sooner we release them, the easier. The second is that, like we discussed with emotional wounds, the size and scope of sin is often in the eye of the beholder. Don't misunderstand me. Wrong is wrong. But for various reasons, it affects each of us differently. In the end, comparing one person's moral high ground to another person's low is a lot like comparing the summit of Everest to the depth of the abyss in the Pacific from the moon. I once read that the surface of the earth is proportionally to its size smoother than an eight ball. Though the differences look radically disparate from here, grace heals all the same. I told him, I'm, I'm sorry you've been weighted by this. That, that, that was then. You're free from it. I, I know who you really are. God forgives you. Set it down and don't pick it back up. I think I can now. It seemed bigger when it was inside me. Now, now don't get me wrong. It, it wasn't a trite little thing that my friend revealed. It's just that, well, in his words, I guess I needed to let that skeleton out of the closet. He seemed scary when he was in there. Turns out this whole time, he was just bones leaning up against that closed door, threatening to come out and pounce me. I listened a moment, soaking his words. At that point, I had secrets too. He continued, I just opened the door to you, afraid of what that skeleton would do to me when I did. But he didn't do anything. He just collapsed on the floor. He didn't have any strength at all. No, I replied as if to coach myself about releasing my own skeletons, about yanking them out of the closets where I'd shoved them away out of sight but not out of mind. Then I added, skeletons don't have any muscle, no voice either, so they can't accuse. And then he said, they can't stand up or do anything on their own. And then I added, we're afraid of the light until we actually get there. Then we find the light is the safest, easiest, most life-giving place to be. It's scary but it's safe. The problem, of course, is that it can seem like a long way to get there. 
whereas flipping a light switch in your house instantly pushes all the dark away, virtually eliminating the shadows in a moment and confirming that no monsters live in the closet under the bed or any other tucked away place, flipping the light on in life seems more like a process. In a word, here's why. Fear. Again, even if the light is the safest place to be, it's also the most vulnerable and frightening. Our timidity about being exposed has to do not only with what we've experienced, but who we think we are and who others will think we are because of what we've done, what was done to us, or what we failed to do. Turn the page. There's a simple cure, but it's used far too little in comparison to the powerful potential it has to revolutionize, well, everything. Chapter 16, The Uncommon Cure. Main Idea. True love expels fear with great intensity, creating space where people own who they are and move forward to who they're designed to be. The all-too-uncommon cure for guilt and shame is receiving forgiveness from someone the wounded person believes has the moral authority to grant that forgiveness. For years, I was afraid to talk about some of my struggles, some of the things that happened to me as well as some of the things I had done. I felt certain I would be written off, rejected, abandoned. It's a longer story than I'll write here, but as a result of my experience, I decided I would provide safe space where no one in my closest sphere of influence would feel, as much as was possible on my end, afraid to approach me with the skeletons they had in their closet like I had been afraid to approach others before. I want to embody grace. Contemplating how to do that led me to 1 John 4.18, a verse I pondered over and over for almost a solid year. It's a passage I endeavor to implement in my interpersonal relationships, in my writing, and on any stage or platform from which I speak. Further, it has everything to do with the cure for that guilt-shame duo we discussed in the previous chapter. Here are two translations of that verse. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And love never brings fear, for fear is always related to punishment, but love's perfection drives the fear of punishment far from our hearts. Whoever walks constantly afraid of punishment has not reached love's perfection. Over the next few pages, I want to highlight three concepts from this verse. Number one, perfect love. Number two, casts out fear. Number three, fear reveals that we've not yet been perfected in love. Then we'll wrap it with a bow and resolve the moral injury issue on paper, at least. Love to your max potential. First, let's define what perfect means. The word used in this passage doesn't infer we'll always love each other without flaw. Rather, it suggests we will love each other maturely to the full capacity that we can love. The Greek word perfect is teleos. It doesn't mean without error, as we most often use the English word perfect. Rather, it means reaching full potential. We find the word in Colossians 1.28 where Paul says, uh, quote, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect, that's teleos, in Christ Jesus, end quote. John, who also wrote in Greek like Paul, places the same word here in 1 John 4.18. So he writes about a love that reaches the full potential or fulfills the purpose for which it was created. In the same way, Paul longed for his congregants to live their purpose and reveal their potential on a personal level. John wants us to love our purpose. That is, he wants our love to be whole, complete, and full of life. Since the Spirit indwells us in His fullness, that is our capacity to deliver the very heart of the Father to the world in which we live. What does that love look like? Well, read the verse again. John describes it. Atelios' love pushes fear out and makes massive space for grace. A la 1 Corinthians 13, Atelios' love hopes for the best, believes the best, and never fails, even when the person being loved clearly falters. 1 Corinthians 13.4 in fact, this love keeps no record of wrongs at all. It actually endures and abounds all the more aggressively when sin is present. See Romans 6.1. Telios love is the antidote for hard things. Expels fear like a demon. Second, let's discuss what cast out fear means. John tells us that mature love, the love that reaches its full potential, dominates fear. 
It doesn't incite fear or insecurity, it eliminates it. As such, teleos love makes people feel safe. I reviewed several translations to see how they translate the term cast out. Here are four ways translators describe what perfect teleos love does. Drives out fear. Expels all fear. Cast out fear. Banishes fear. In other words, this kind of love is strong, one of the most powerful forces in the universe. It's more potent than PTSD. It's more massive than moral injury. It shudders shame. Here's how intensely it creates security. The same word used of cast out fear is the same verbiage used throughout the New Testament to describe how Jesus treated demons. When he bumped into them, they had no choice but to leave. He expelled them. He forced them to go. He eliminated them. It's a great analogy. Mature love, the God kind of love, does the exact same thing to condemnation, fear, and shame. Perfect love drives fear away with the same passion. Fear has no choice but leave when people are loved in this way. Now, pause. Step back. Do a heart check. Let's be honest. This is the exact opposite of what many people experience when they come in contact with our moral systems of right and wrong, our religious routines, and our belief systems about making the world a better place. Rather than driving fear away from the relationship and communicating, hey, come in close, tell me what's really happening, we often invite fear and place it on the person like a cloak of shame. They already feel devastated, yet we often want to make them feel more morally broken as we think that will safeguard them from breaking that universal subset of fact number three rules again. Seems odd once you put it on a piece of paper and take a logical look at it, doesn't it? I've done it in parenting. I've done it in preaching. I've done it in relationships. We often like it when others have a healthy measure of fear because it allows us to control the interaction and maintain the upper hand. We sometimes even use those three unhealthy emotional expressions, exploding, shrilling and shrieking, and blowing off, to make people feel afraid, that is, to control them. We're afraid that if they don't experience some degree of fear, they might not see how desperately they need grace, our grace. They might not change. They might not get their stuff together. We might not be able to control them. But think practically about the environment surrounding Jesus. Tax collectors not only felt comfortable talking with him, they felt confident enough in his love to invite their wayward friends to a party at which he would be present. It's Matthew 9, 9 through 13. Women who earned their money in licentious ways knew he would receive them. They were so certain they would be accepted by him that they barged into dinners where they weren't even invited. See Luke 7, 36 and following. Lepers, people the law demanded stay away from others, actually approached Jesus so that he could touch them. Mark 1.40 Roman soldiers, those who occupied the Jewish areas like warlords keeping Jesus and his people in physical subservience, were able to look beyond the us versus you dilemma and approach him for personal needs. See Matthew 8, 5 and following. Jesus commended and rewarded their great faith. People considered unclean and excluded from the temple like the woman with the flow of blood and believed to be so unclean that they would make others ceremonially unclean by touching them boldly moved through crowds and touched Jesus. Mark 5, 25 and following, they knew they would be embraced. Religious leaders approached him too. Men like Jairus, whose daughter was at death's door, Mark 5, 22 and following, he abandoned protocol and knelt before Jesus publicly, imploring him to visit her. And Nicodemus, one of the elite Pharisees who approached him at night and asked him how a person could be born again. See John 3, 1 and following. Notably, most of these people carried some obvious skeleton that stood in direct opposition to a specific scriptural command. Many of them had been shunned because of it, yet despite that, they all felt safe with Jesus. Are these the people who feel welcome near us? Or would they be afraid to approach us because we haven't been perfected in love? John reminds us in 1 John 4, 18, love never brings fear. Or to apply it directly to our culture, love doesn't cancel. Fear of being called out, punished, humiliated. Third, let's discuss why people are afraid. That is, why they keep the wounds of the past bottled up. John, who spent three years with Jesus and was present at each of the encounters mentioned above, provides us with a clue. 
After telling us Telios' love expels fear, he clearly explains why people fear. He writes, fear involves punishment, 1 John 4, 18. In each of the episodes above, people who approached Jesus knew they'd find themselves pulled closer rather than pushed away and punished, regardless of how big and horrific the issue was. They didn't need to self-protect. They didn't need to preserve their dignity. They didn't need to hide behind a veil. He elevated them higher than they had ever been, even as many of them brought their biggest shame and disappointment to him. In another verse in the same chapter, John writes in 1 John 4.12, No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. Notice what John says. Even though none of us have physically seen our Redeemer, we tangibly experience the complete manifestation of who he is when we encounter unconditional love from another human. That is when we feel safe to be completely exposed and vulnerable. Only that kind of love works. In fact, that is the kind of love that shreds fear and shame, truly breathing life into people. Imperfect, immature love does the exact opposite. It instills fear, it creates hiding, it empowers shame, it focuses on the rules rather than the relationship. It values written letters over love and action. I can't imagine the atrocities of war. I've never been. An elderly gentleman who served as the librarian at a church I attended during seminary was flabbergasted when Saving Private Ryan hit the big screen back in 1998. Whereas critics and commoners like me praised its graphic depiction of the battlefront, he had a different take altogether. It's not real, he said. Everything I saw in Normandy was seven or eight times worse. The air was dirty. There were people falling next to you in gory ways the films can never depict. The colors were different, the sound was deafening, and the smell was something I'd never experienced. I stood there, his words engulfing me. He continued, I hope people never see what it's really like. It's horrific. War is hell on earth. My naive 24-year-old self wondered what could possibly be more graphic than saving Private Ryan. I couldn't envision it, no matter how hard I tried. I just listened. After a few minutes, he added, I don't know that people around here would look at me the same if they knew what that was really like, the things I experienced and the things I had to do. There it was. Bullseye. Not just emotional wounds, but spiritual wounds. Moral damage. Moral injury. Something had stung his soul in the deepest way. He wasn't fighting or flighting, as is the case with PTSD. He carried guilt and shame. And this brave soldier who had stared Hitler eye to eye was afraid of church people. Would we look at you the same, I asked? Yes. All of that destruction you see on the film and everything that happened during the war, that was done by people by soldiers, by young men like me. Sadly, I, I never thought about that conversation again until after I began writing this chapter. In my mind, we had accepted him. He was the church librarian. He was one of us. But in his mind, he wasn't. He always carried around the baggage of things he held back, a skeleton in the closet, that seemed infinitely scarier the longer it remained propped behind closed doors. He was afraid that if he revealed that skeleton, we would shun him. Growing up in a religious environment, he'd probably seen enough evidence to verify that, yes, shunning happens. Sure, we cloak it in acceptable language, but we still do it. We often, even sometimes unintentionally, shame people into silence about their biggest secrets, their deepest hurts. As we began writing Warrior Hope, working our way back through the invisible scars and honoring the code documentaries, and sitting across the table from numerous veterans of all ages, we heard the same refrain from many of them. I'm not so sure what my family would think of me if they knew the things I did over there. And if people understood how many things I had to do that I never thought I would ever do. Or... I feel like there's a me from over there that I would like to leave there, and I feel like there's a me now. There, there's a tension between those two. In other words, they're afraid they won't be accepted. You don't have to endure war to feel that same tension. In fact, though most people have never been to battle, I venture to say most people feel this tug of war between the person they project and the person they truly are, like we discussed back in chapter 6 what it has to do with moral injury. All that said, let's talk about what this has to do with moral injury. 
Moral injury occurs when the experiences or choices a person makes or is exposed to, even through no fault of their own, conflicts with their personal code of conduct, morals, or ethics, the things we hold as right and wrong. As you can imagine, anyone struggling with this will feel great guilt and or shame. I just relayed what I've heard from soldiers, but the mantra is the same from people who experience moral injury for any reason. Let me tell you what the data reveals, and I promise you, you'll understand why 80% of this chapter seemed more like a Bible study than a chapter in a book about soul freedom. It seems like a simple answer, but the data is consistent. Practitioners of healing who study moral injury from both secular sources and sacred sources agree that overcoming moral injury requires one thing. You can't bottle it. You can't package it. You can't mass deliver it. The all-too-uncommon cure for moral injury is receiving forgiveness from someone the wounded person believes has the moral authority to grant that forgiveness. They need to hear the words, you're forgiven, you're accepted, it's the past. Some even need to hear, I'm proud of the person you are. And others need to hear the words, I love you. Who has the authority to gift these words? It depends on the person who needs it. It might be a pastor, a priest, or a rabbi, a former coach, an officer or soldier someone served with, even veterans they don't know personally, someone else they perceive as an authority. It must be someone they believe, sense, or feel has the authority to impart that forgiveness. It is at this point the healing process often begins. I know, you might have been looking for a more revelatory answer. For seven steps, a weekend retreat, a pilgrimage, or something akin to doing something significant rather than receiving something significant. If you come from a faith tradition, you might have also just winced a bit when I said that coaches, soldiers, teachers, and anyone else can dispense forgiveness. I know, it sounds strange. But then there's this. During Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees regularly scolded him for forgiving people. In their mind, only God could do that. In response, at the end of his time on earth, Jesus did something incredibly interesting. We find it in John chapter 20. After they discovered the empty tomb, the disciples hid in the upper room, afraid they might be killed too. Jesus appeared to them behind the locked doors, showing that our emotional duress, even fear itself, doesn't hinder him from finding us. John tells us he breathed the Holy Spirit on them, and then he declared in John 20 verse 23, If you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Clearly, he expanded the power of imparting forgiveness farther and wider than the religious elite of the daydream possible. Not only could God in heaven forgive sins, but his son certainly could, Mark 2, 10 and 11. And not only could that son forgive sins, but all the king's sons and daughters could. Perhaps this is why Jesus said that all men will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. See John 13, 34, and 35. Love communicates something nothing else can. Love is the greatest revelation possible to an unbelieving or desperately wanting to believe world. Love creates sacred space where much needed healing happens. And remember, sacred and secular professionals alike agree that freedom is found in forgiveness. If this describes you. If you're suffering with guilt or shame, let me remind you that you can always find a story to back your perception that you'll be rejected. I revealed the most to the person I loved the best and was shunned the hardest. And like the vet in the church library, I've learned that some of the biggest offenders of loving people imperfectly are the most oblivious to it, even using pop psychology, Bible verses, and well-worn phrases that sound more cliche than real. But that's not the norm. Most people want to dispense grace because at the core, they know they've needed it and will need it again. Freedom is always found on the other side of transparency. Perhaps you need to let go of things you've done or you need to release the weight of things you've experienced, things that were done to you or things you witnessed firsthand. Whatever the case, freedom is found in the light. Label it, light it up, let it go. Yet, remember that not everyone needs access to your story. You may decide to talk to more people in the future, but freedom in the area you're hiding begins the instant you talk to the few we discussed in the introduction. Turn the page. 
In the next chapter, we'll discuss what to do next to continue moving forward. Freedom isn't just about dealing with the past, it's about letting go of who you were so that you can live as the person you're designed to be. That is, freedom is something you proactively choose every day. Okay, so there it is. And I think after listening, you might realize, wow, I believe that one is far more widespread than PTSD. Probably not more widespread than some of the soul ties now that we've defined that in a different way. But but this one right here, guilt and shame, those are massive. And honestly, in the culture in which we tend to live, the cancel culture and all of this name calling and oh goodness, you know, we ironically live in a culture where people seem to be more tolerant than at any point at any other time in history. It feels like that. Yet at the same time, this is the most blaming and shaming culture that I've ever experienced. And those two things are at odds and make no sense. And when you get to the end of this, at chapter 16, you find out that apart from some type of forgiveness, this whole thing just doesn't work and it doesn't get resolved. You can't cancel your way out of guilt and shame. It it seems like you would be able to, but that's really just something that you do to inflict control on people and, and to, ironically, shame them even more. Okay, so here's, here's the sign-off for today. My, my prayer is that the Lord would bless you. He would keep you. He'd be gracious and shine His face of favor upon you. If you're struggling with guilt and shame right now, I pray and just speak freedom over you that you're forgiven that the guilt trip is over, that the condemnation is gone, that per Romans 8 and 1, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for he has set you free. And I sense that you're going to feel that burden just lifting off of you. Perhaps still some conversations you need to have, perhaps still some people that you need to reconnect with, But at this point, my prayer is for you that it will be easier to step forward. And that as you open that door, that you'll see that skeleton fall and realize that there's no muscle, there's no sinew, no tendons, no ligaments, no breath, no voice, that it's just disconnected bones that clutter and fall to the floor. My prayer too is that as you find healing in this area, And you don't have to find total healing to dispense healing to others. My prayer is that you will be a channel of force of grace. That as you walk through life, people would be drawn to you like metal to magnets. And may you gift them the heart of your heavenly Father that, as scripture says, keeps no records of wrongs. That's 1 Corinthians 13. And as Romans says, that where sin and shame abound, grace superabounds. May you walk and release that to the world around you. Grace and peace. I'll see you again soon.